Hello, friends, and welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for watching if you're on YouTube. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were at a restaurant eating, and on the way out at the host station, there was a young man working there, and he was wearing a symbol that was very precious to me. And so I asked him, I said, do you know what that symbol that you're wearing means? And he said, well, a little bit. You know, my grandma told me some stories growing up. And I said, would it be okay if I told you what it means to me? And he said, yeah, sure. And so I told him uh, a long, long time ago, uh, the Bible tells us that all of humanity had become so wicked that every intention of man's heart was evil all of the time. And this grieved God so deeply that he said he regretted making mankind and he was going to destroy the whole world in a flood. But there was a man named Noah and he was found righteous in his generation. And so God chose Noah and his three sons and their wives. God chose this family to save them. And he chose Noah to save all of the other animals. And so he told Noah to build an ark and to bring the animals. And this massive flood came and it wiped out all of humanity. It destroyed every living thing except for this family and the animals that were in this ark. And after the flood and many days later when the ark settled and Noah and his family came out, you can imagine how traumatized they were. They had just seen the destruction of all life, all humanity completely destroyed. You can imagine that this would have just been a very traumatic experience for Noah and his family. And the creation scientists, guys, the, the people who enjoy studying that stuff, some of them think that that would have been the first generation that even saw rain, that before the flood, the earth's environment was very different and that the earth was watered by a mist, like it talks about in Genesis chapter two. And so Noah's generation may have even been the first generation to see this kind of rain fall like that from the sky. And so it would have been very traumatic for Noah if he had started to see this kind of rain fall again. And so God comes to Noah and he tells him, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a solemn agreement with you that I will never destroy the earth with a flood again. And so God makes this covenant, this solemn oath, this solemn agreement with Noah. And he says, here's the sign of my covenant. I'm going to put my bow in the sky. Now, when I was a kid, I, I explained to this young man, when I was a kid, I always thought of the bow as like the thing that goes on top of a Christmas present or a birthday gift. But when God says to Noah, I'm going to set my bow in the clouds, God is not thinking of a bow that goes in somebody's hair or a bow on a gift. God is talking about a warrior's bow, a, a bow for hunting, a bow for violence, and God is saying, I'm setting down my weapon. I'm setting down my warrior's bow. You don't need to be afraid of my wrath. You don't have to be afraid. So, you know, if Noah were seeing the storm clouds gather and it started to rain again, he would not need to be fearful that God was going to destroy the earth again. And so God says, I'm setting my bow in the clouds. And so not only was God reassuring Noah, that he was not going to flood the earth again, but God was making a prophetic statement because when he set his bow in the clouds, it was turned toward heaven. So this warrior's bow was shooting the direction of heaven, shooting upward. And this was a prophetic symbol of what God was going to do when he sent his son Jesus, that he was going to turn his wrath towards sin 
onto himself, that he was going to put all of his wrath, all of his anger towards sin, all of his displeasure towards sin, that he was going to put on himself, that God's instrument of war, this bow was pointed toward heaven. It was pointed toward himself. And that's exactly what God did when he sent his son, Jesus. When Jesus came and he suffered and died on the cross, God put all of his wrath, all of his just judgment onto Jesus Christ at the cross. And Jesus bore the full weight of our sin. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus took everything that we deserve, all the punishment that we deserve because we're all sinners. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory, the standard of his goodness. We've all sinned, but Jesus took all of that onto himself. So Jesus took everything that we should take, all of our punishment. He took what we deserve so that we might share what he deserves. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ when we accept Jesus as our King and we let him rule our lives, that we become co-heirs with Jesus and we get to inherit the kingdom of God with Christ. So Jesus becomes sin, not by committing deeds of sin, but God makes him sin in the same way we become righteous, not by committing deeds of righteousness or doing good things, but just by trusting in Christ. God gives us this gift of righteousness. And so I was explaining that to this young man, that this symbol he was wearing, this rainbow that he was wearing was a reminder that God took all of the wrath that mankind deserves and he turned it toward himself. So I shared that with this young man and the restaurant manager had come out and uh, some other restaurant staff had gathered around and I was using the crayons that they give to the kids and a piece of paper and I had drawn the rainbow and the warrior's bow with the arrow pointed toward heaven and I drew a cross just talking about Jesus and he said, wow, you know, that's, I, I had heard the story of Noah from some stories that my grandma had told me, but I didn't see this whole picture. And I think the the restaurant manager, I think, was a believer because he was really encouraging the other staff to listen and to pay attention to what we were talking about. So that was really awesome. But as I studied more about the rainbow, you know, how many colors does the rainbow have? If you Google how many colors in the rainbow, it comes back that there are seven colors of the rainbow. And the next time we see the rainbow is in the presence of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1 says this, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around. And he's describing the throne room of God. And then we see it again in Revelation. And John expands that even more. And he says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Michael Reeves writes about this in his book, God Shines Forth. He writes, John's vision of the Lamb enthroned was also marked by the appearance of a rainbow, Revelation 4.3. This sign the Lord had first put in the sky after the flood. It was to be a reminder to Noah and to all creation that God would never again judge the earth by destroying all life with the flood. The Lord even speaks of the rainbow as a reminder to himself of this eternal covenant and promise, Genesis 9.11-16. The bow in the clouds is a bow for arrows, for hunting or for battle. 
Genesis 48.22, 2 Chronicles 18.33. The sign from the Lord that he will never again destroy all flesh is his own war bow set in the clouds, armed and aimed at heaven. The Lord's everlasting covenant was fulfilled when the Son took upon himself the flood of judgment on our sin. This is the light that encircles the very throne of heaven. Comparing the throne to the ark in the tabernacle, Jonathan Edwards writes, God is encompassed with a rainbow, which signifies that as he sits and reigns and manifests himself in his church, he appears as encompassed with mercy. And so around God's throne is this rainbow with seven colors. And God takes this phenomenon of heaven. He takes this technology of heaven and he shares it with the earth. And what the other thing that we learn in Revelation is that there are these seven torches in, in God's presence. And when John has this vision of heaven and they represent the sevenfold spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that Isaiah describes as a sevenfold spirit of God. And so there's seven colors in the rainbow. And the other interesting thing is that when God is making this promise to Noah, he says this word for uh promise for uh, an oath seven times. And so, the word for oath is sounds the same in Hebrew as the word for seven, sheva. And so, God says that he's making a promise seven times. It's this perfect number, and there's seven colors in the rainbow, the sevenfold spirit of God. So, not only is God saying, I'm turning my wrath toward heaven, he's also saying, I want my presence to be among mankind. I want my presence to be among humanity, to dwell with humanity. And that was a symbol of what God is doing, what God is accomplishing through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians says that the eternal purpose of God is to unite everything in heaven with everything on earth through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was a picture of God's desire to be with us and a a prophetic symbol of what God was going to accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Noah, you know, like I said, he must have been extremely traumatized through this experience of the flood and everything that he went through. And so Noah is comforted right when he sees the rainbow. But that's not actually what the scripture says. The scripture says in Genesis 9, 16, it says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And so it's not, the the rainbow is not just to keep Noah from freaking out when it starts raining. What God says the purpose of the rainbow is, is for him to see it and he will remember the covenant. And I think there's a really important lesson here for us. And that is what you see is not nearly as important as what God sees. You know, sometimes we look at our lives after becoming Christians and we just think, man, I'm, I'm just so far from what I want to be. I'm still so frustrated with myself. I'm still struggling with these same issues. And we look at ourselves and we look at our own brokenness and we feel this sense of shame and disappointment in our lives. But we have to remember that what God sees is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That the Bible says that we are blameless, that we are above reproach, that we are holy and beloved children of God. And God has counted us righteous, not because of righteous deeds we have done, but because of the righteousness that Christ accomplished for us through his sacrifice on the cross. And so how we feel before God 
God is not nearly as important as how God feels about us. There's a famous A.W. Tozer quote that I really like a lot. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But C.S. Lewis read that and he disagreed. And C.S. Lewis wrote, by God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. And so I I appreciate the A.W. Tozer quote because what he's getting at is our lives will be directed by how we think about God. The, the, The direction of our lives, one of the most important things that will direct our lives, actually the most important thought that will direct our lives is how we think about God. But the most important thing about us is how God thinks about us, which is what C.S. Lewis was pointing out. So just like the rainbow wasn't there so much for Noah's comfort, though I'm sure it was a comfort for Noah to know that God was setting down his warrior's bow, but the rainbow wasn't there so much for Noah to look at as it was for God to look at. So the cross is not there to give us warm fuzzies about how much God loves us. The cross is there that God might look on us and see the beauty of his son. And so C.S. Lewis finishes that quote that I just read. He goes on, and this is from The Weight of Glory, and he writes, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That is the miracle of God's grace, that by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you and I can become pleasing to God, that he takes pleasure in us, that our lives actually bring him joy because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our failures, he doesn't see our frustrations, he doesn't uh, see all the things that we're doing wrong. Not only that, but he also is not looking at our accomplishments. He's also not looking at the things that we think might give us merit before him. When God looks at us, he takes pleasure in us because he sees the blood of his son. Just like the Passover angel, when the angel saw the blood on the house, it passed over and they were safe from God's wrath. They weren't, the, the, the angel of the Lord was not looking at what was going on inside the house, whether the people in the house were good people, whether they were behaving properly, whether they were being nice, were the husbands loving their wives, were the husbands um, behaving properly, were the wives being submissive, were the children being obedient, none of that stuff. All the angel looked for was the blood on the doorpost. And if he saw the blood, he passed over. And Jesus' blood covers us and makes us righteous, makes us holy, makes us acceptable to God. Now, of course, as we live out his kingdom, it affects our experience of God. You know, of course, as Paul said, God's grace is not a license to go and live however we want because we want to inherit the reign and rule of Jesus in our lives right now today. But it's so good to remind ourselves that there's nothing we can do to add to what Jesus has accomplished for us. Jesus has earned for us the privilege of having the same relationship that he enjoys with the Father, that he has 
brought us into that relationship, that we can participate in the divine nature, that we can participate in the fellowship of the Trinity as beloved children of God because Jesus has qualified us. Henry Nouwen wrote, as long as we want to be interesting, distinct, special, and worthy of special praise, we are pulled away from the deep realization that we are like other people, that we are part of the human race, and in the final analysis, that we are not different, but the same. So, Our desire to be interesting, distinct, special, worthy of special praise, basically to try and be better than other people, those things pull us away from God. They pull us away from others. But when we acknowledge, you know what, I'm just like everybody else. We're all broken. We all need Jesus. And the only thing that gives me merit before God is the blood of Jesus, is the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. Then we draw near to God by Jesus Christ through the blood of his son, and we can draw near to one another, and we can enjoy community with one another. Let me close with this. 1 Peter 3.16 says, In the days of Noah, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. So, just as God saved Noah from the wrath of his judgment in the waters by placing Noah and his family in the ark, so God saves us from his wrath by placing us into Christ. And what God sees is far more important than what you see. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.